Sam Borden, where are we starting this story? I want to start with where I was on Tuesday morning. Tuesday morning in Santos here, which is a port city on the southern coast. It's about 20 miles or so from Sao Paulo. Sam Borden is ESPN's global sports correspondent, and he has been in Brazil covering the funeral of Pele, arguably the biggest sports star that ever lived. Santos is this city on the ocean, and it has these channels, these these canals that run through it. And on Tuesday morning, I was near what they call Canal Cis, Channel 6, and I was standing in front of Pele's family's house, where Pele's 100-year-old mother still lives. And there were about 3,000 people on the street in front of the house. And this crowd of thousands was waiting because any moment now, Pele's body was making its final tour around the city. The coffin was on top of a fire truck and had left the stadium and was making its way through the city of Santos. And there are fans of Santos, the club, and they're waving these giant flags, and they're singing Santos songs. And they're shouting out to Pele's family, and they're throwing roses over the fence onto the lawn in front of Pele's family's house. And then finally, amidst all this sort of madness, the fire engine shows up. And it makes its way slowly down the street. People are literally having to be cleared away by policemen to make room for this giant fire truck to squeeze its way down this narrow street and get in front of Pele's mother's house. And when it does, you can see his sister, relatives, the mother just barely poking her head out the window. She's not in great health. She's bedridden most days. But she looked out and saw this fire engine that had her son's casket atop it. At one point, Pablo, everybody recited the Lord's Prayer. It was a strange juxtaposition of grief and emotion. You could see it on the face of his family and on many of the fans there, but also this feeling of pride that that this legend, this, you know, icon of sports, of global culture was from here. He belonged to the world. He was a big part of so many countries, so many cultures all over the world. But he wasn't loved anywhere else the way that he was loved here. Obviously, over the last week or so, people have been saying goodbye to Pele from everywhere on this planet. But I wanted to be here to see how the people who knew him, the people who are from where he's from, got to say goodbye to him too. 
for all our obsession with the newest and greatest thing. History matters in sports. It really does, and it always has. We venerate records, we debate eras, we compare and rank and measure. And whatever your metaphor of choice happens to be, the top of some sort of pyramid, Mount Olympus, Mount Rushmore, there is no debate about the fact that Pele belongs up at the very top somewhere. The most famous person who ever played the most popular sport on planet Earth, as he himself once acknowledged. I am a part of the biggest family in the world, football. <laughs> it's a big responsibility, of course, but uh, this is a, it's a good gift from God. So today, we explore exactly what Pele did with that gift for decades upon decades, until last Thursday, when he died at age 82. The first truly global superstar in sports history, and a man who is more important and more complicated than you might realize. I'm Pablo Torre. It's Thursday, January 5th. And this is ESPN Daily. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Sam, it occurs to me that, like, I mean, how old are you? I'm 37. You're how old? I just turned 44. It feels like the people who are younger than us, Sam. I'm about to go those kids, those damn kids. But yeah, like Those kids, yeah. <laughs> but it feels like those kids may not appreciate fully why Pele is this magnitude of a person to us. And so where do you even, like, begin that sort of back of the soccer card summary? Like, how do you begin to explain what he meant, big picture? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good point, Pablo, and it's really tough because it's a different era, right? I mean, we hear these discussions when we talk about baseball players or basketball players from, you know, a different era than sort of the modern game that is being played right now. But, you know, Pele, he had a 21-year career. He scored... 1,283 goals in like 1,367 <laughs> matches. That's a lot, by the way, for the record. Yeah, That's like about as many as anyone could imagine. I was yeah. just going to say, I mean, I don't know what the the metrics, you know, expected goals would have been for him, or that would say, but bottom line, he scored a ton. He, he scored 77 goals for the Brazilian national team. He's still the only player in history to win three World Cups. I mean, it was one of those things where when you talk about Pele, there was a beauty, there was a strength, there was a style to how he played, but it wasn't just that artistry. He also won. I mean, he was a big game player, right? you know? And so like you put those two together. Yes, incredibly talented. Yes, the kind of guy who is a star, who scores the goals. He wasn't a defender. He wasn't a goalkeeper. Yes, the guy who wins championships and he's good looking. He's got a smile. He plays with flair. Like it's one of those things where it's impossible to overstate 
just how big a spotlight was on this guy for so long and how he delivered in that spotlight every single time. And that spotlight found him so early, right? I mean, we're talking about four World Cup appearances starting when he was 17 in 1958 through to 1970 with Brazil winning three of those. And all of that makes Pele still the only player to have ever won that many World Cups. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing, you know, I mean, he also benefited Pablo from being famous at a time when technology was allowing people to become more global. I mean, he played in the first World Cup that was in color television. You know what I mean? And so he's out there scoring goals for Brazil in the yellow shirt and the blue shorts. Like it was visually arresting. You know what I mean? Oh, iconic. Yeah. And so it, it, it was an image that became a part of like the modern day soccer. It was the beginning of the modern day soccer. It was just this incredible cauldron that led to Pele becoming, like you said, the biggest star in the biggest sport on the planet. Right. He was pretty much just also kind of the only soccer player that Americans could name for like decades. He was this stand-in for the entire sport of soccer in America. And I guess to do him justice, we should probably establish how it is that he started playing the game. Like, how did that part of his life start? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting story. You know, I mean, obviously, with, with sort of the modern day players, whether you're talking about Ronaldo or Messi, even Messi, who came from Argentina, his is a European story. You know, he went to Barcelona, he came up through the academy there, and he went on to become, you know, the biggest star in the world. Pelé, it's different. I mean, this is not a European story. This is a guy who came up through poverty, uh, adversity. He was born in, you know, a very small house, a shack, basically, in Minas Gerais. He grew up in poverty. His dad wanted to be a professional soccer player, had some experience as a professional soccer player, but had his career essentially destroyed by injury. And the family fell on hard times. And it, to, be, it, to be honest, Pele's mother didn't want him to be a soccer player. My mother, she doesn't want to see me a soccer player because my father doesn't have a much luck. Then my mother used to say when I was young, you see your father, you know, he didn't play well, he has problems. It's you not must a profitable be, career. Yeah, you, you must be a teacher or a doctor, something like that. Don't play soccer. As she saw it, it only was going to lead to, to hardship and failure. Uh, so it, it took a lot for Pele to essentially convince his family that, no, 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 hey, this is something I'm good at. You know, when he was 10, the mayor of uh, Boru, the town where he was living, th th they had a, uh, a soccer tournament. And Pele, he, he wasn't used to playing soccer in anything other than playing barefoot, but, but he played. He played at the stadium where Boru played, where his father had played, and Pele was the top scorer in the tournament. And, you know, shortly after that, Santos came calling. He moved to Santos, convinced his parents that he should give this a shot. And, I mean, it's one of those things where, like, he arrived in Santos and the rest pretty much is history. But the whole legend of him, like the moniker of him, Pele, the name, that part is from where? Yeah, it's funny. Uh, I'm glad that you asked about it, Pablo, because it was one of the things that I've always been curious about. And so while I've been down here, we actually... Uh, uh, the fixer that I'm working with, uh, he and I did a little bit of work and tried to track down a little bit of the mystery. You know, Pele's real name is Edson. His parents actually named him after Thomas Edison and, and misspelled it. It's spelled E-D-S-O-N 
for Pelé, but <laughs> the idea was that he was named after Thomas Edison. It was an inventor that, that was appealing to his parents. But when he was younger, he, he really liked this goalkeeper who played for a team uh, in the area that he was living. And the name of the goalkeeper was Bilay, Bilay, B-I-L-E, Bilay. And when Pelé would play, a lot of times if he made a, a good play or he was, you know, knocked the ball away from somebody or took the ball away from somebody, he would shout out, Bilay, Bilay, Bilay. And the other players, as you <laughs> might imagine, Pablo, kind of, kind of seized upon that the way kids do, the way, you know, people like right. to... Right, this is a kid saying uh, Kobe after they drain <laughs> like a jumper. Exactly, and, and, and everybody seized upon it, and they started to, to sort of make fun of him for it. And it wasn't helped by the fact that Pelé didn't speak perfectly, and so it came out sounding a little bit more like Pelé, 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 and it stuck. When I was uh, around uh, eight, nine years old, a little boy in the street, he called me Pele. Everybody started to laugh. I don't know if it was a joking or some pronunciation wrong. I just remember a fight with him. I was in the school, I got three days suspended <laughs> because he called Pele, said, hey, my name is Edson, this ugly name I don't like. And now I have to accept. So you, step, you, st you stuck with it though? Yeah, well, now I like because it's an easy name to pronounce. Right, it's a lot easier to recognize, I guess, throughout yeah. the world. Pele actually has said many times that he didn't particularly love the nickname. He thought that, you know, it wasn't necessarily like the, the kindest compliment to him. Uh, but it's funny because while I've been down here, uh, we actually tried to track down a relative of Bilay. Bilay passed away long ago, but we did. We've, I think we found his, uh, one of his nephews and uh, his nephew, Bilay's nephew told us that it's actually been an incredible point of pride because he feels like his family has this, this special connection to this Brazilian legend. And so as he's been watching all of the coverage of Pelé, he's been thinking fondly about his uncle. Yeah, I mean, look, here is this guy who was so unbelievable that he turned, you know, this joke of a nickname into something that was, that stood for what? Stylistically, Sam, would you say? In a lot of ways, it's similar to something I often think about when I think about Messi. And that's, this guy doesn't look like a superstar athlete. You know what I mean? Messi, I mean, uh, his nickname is the Flea, and, and it stands up because he's really tiny. But Pelé is hardly big. I mean, he was 5'8". He was, you know, mm. not, not particularly broad, not particularly, like, imposing in any way, but he played with this Jogo Bonito, right? This Brazilian style, the beautiful game, clever ball control, passing. I mean... I think when you look back at some of his highlights, and, and the one that I love to look at is the 1958 World Cup final. In his first goal, he takes the ball on his chest, chest trap, drops it down to his foot, flicks it up with his foot over his own head and over the defender who is on him. Yes. Spins around and then volleys the ball into the net. <laughs> I mean, it is, you know, what do, what do the kids say, Pablo? Put it in the Louvre. Do the kids say that? I mean, like, it is a... Yeah, they used to. It, yeah. it, it is museum-quality <laughs> soccer. Do you know what I mean? Like No, it, it, a viral, a, and in more modern parlance, a viral, like, trending topic of a highlight, if it happened, yeah, in any era. It is just sick. <laughs> 
if you love soccer, it is the kind of goal that just makes you smile. And that was that was Pelé, you know, like he he had this this joy, this this belief that he could make anything happen. And he often did. And I think that, you know, that was such an amazing way to stand out in that time. You know, the the defense and the offense of that time was a little more staid, a little more um, uh, sturdy than maybe we think of it today. The game was less fluid. The positions were more defined. And Pelé was a scorer and an artist in a time when there weren't very many of those. And I think that just elevated him to a position even higher than anybody could have possibly imagined. Yeah, no, that moment in 58 in the World Cup where he's doing that, I can only imagine what it was like to be just like a normie soccer fan at the time who has now borne witness to, yeah, a figure who looks and plays nothing like anyone I had seen before and is basically unstoppable. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right, Pablo. I mean, that that was his introduction on the world stage. That was his coming out party in so many ways. I mean, he was a 17-year-old kid. He came out of nowhere, essentially. He scored six goals in that tournament, three in the semifinal against France, two in the final over Sweden. I mean, it was Brazil's first World Cup in 1958. And as you just sort of alluded to there, also... This is a black face doing it. This is a black player doing it against Europeans where there really aren't very many black faces at all. And so I think in so many ways that 1958 World Cup was the beginning of the Pele that we know now, that that we experienced, right? That our generation experienced. That was where it began. That was where his stardom began. That was where his legend began. The interesting thing, Pablo, you know, in terms of like uh, club teams, obviously there was a a, a lot of interest from European club teams in bringing Pelé over to play on the continent. And so in 1961, there was so much interest that the Brazilian government said, hang on a minute, we got to keep Pelé in Brazil. They passed a resolution that declared him a non-exportable national treasure. And that's why he never (laughs) played in Europe during his career. I just need it on the record here that that resolution is better than actually being labeled the GOAT. Being a non-exportable national treasure, Sam, is to me actually the GOAT of titles. (laughs) But it is also true that later, late in his career, Pele did get exported all the way to America. And that's after the break. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code DAILY. That's code DAILY. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. 
Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home some huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So we have been trafficking in superlatives all day here, Sam. And so I figured I might as well just throw a quote from Andy Warhol, the artist who said in the 60s that in the future, everyone will be world famous for 15 minutes. Because Warhol, it turns out, also said this. Pele is one of the few who contradicted my theory. Instead of 15 minutes of fame, he will have 15 centuries. And so that sheer tonnage of attention, that status of being the most famous man on earth, how would you say Pele handled all that? Yeah, I think the thing that has stood out to me the most, Pablo, this week when I've been in Brazil and Santos is the way that people who live here that knew Pele, that knew him when he was younger, even, even when he was uh, you know, a teenager playing here, they all kind of say the same thing, which is that he clearly liked being famous. Well, you are the most photographed, <clears throat> the most interviewed, the most recognized person throughout the world. Do you get tired of that after a while? I mean, too many interviews, so many photographers shooting your pictures, so many people asking for autographs. After a while, this is where you are. No, no, I feel... I feel comfortable in that, you know, of course, it's nice when you, you know the people recognize what you're doing. The people like you, it's very nice. He certainly reveled in the attention, he enjoyed it, he lived it up, he partied, you know, all of those things. But he also was able to maintain this, this feeling of being a regular guy. I mean, I talked to a man named Alamao who owns a bar right literally across the street from the Villa Belmiro Stadium where Pele played. And Alamao talks about how Pele would come in once a week, twice a week sometimes, even when he was playing, even when he was this big star. And he would sit there and he would drink Guarana because that was what Pele always drank. And they would talk about football and then and then Pele would go next door to this barber shop that was right next to, that is right next to Alamao's bar. And he would see the same barber, this guy named Gigi, and he would get his haircut from Gigi. And, and literally for 50 years, the same routine, even after, after he was retired, same routine, come into Alamao's bar, have a Guarana, go see Gigi. I looked at uh, Gigi's uh, shop window when I was visiting with Alamao and the sign that Gigi has on top of his shop, it says, Pele's Barber, I could be yours too. (laughs) So clearly people have been trading on Pele's name for a very long time. Yeah, there is this entire Pele industrial complex at this point. A Pele industrial complex, by the way, which eventually led Pele to do the thing that so many modern soccer players have also done since he did it, which is spend the twilight of your career in the United States. Because we're talking now about 50 years ago, long before Major League Soccer, back in the days of the now defunct North American Soccer League, the NASL, And we're talking about a team called the New York Cosmos. 
So why did Pele finally decide to come to America? Yeah, it's fascinating, Pablo, to think back to because he came out of retirement. I mean, like, hypothetically, his career was over at that point. He had retired, but at 34 years old, he spends three seasons with the Cosmos, essentially in a quest to help popularize soccer in the United States. Now, obviously, that is the sort of overarching theme. Yes, I'm going to bring soccer to the United States. He also got paid a lot of money. And it was no secret that Pele struggled with his finances a couple of different times during his career. He spent his money not so wisely on a number of occasions, nearly went bankrupt a couple of times. And so mm. he needed the money. It was one of those things where he definitely needed the money and he knew that he could get the money in the United States. He wasn't going to get it in Brazil, uh, but he could get it in the United States. And so essentially he made himself into this, you know, Pied Piper of soccer. He, you know, the Cosmos went from a team that was like kind of interesting in the NASL to like the Beatles, essentially. They were playing in front of crowds of, you know, 75,000 at Giant Stadium. I think NASL attendances in the years before that barely would make it to 10,000 on occasion, you know? And that was like a good day. Yeah. I mean, Pelé's first game, he played on an artificial turf field that was spray painted green in patches to make it look like an actual grass soccer field. This wasn't a place that was, you know, a, a, a soccer country, even that we know it now. This was a place where Pele was the name, Pele was the draw, and soccer was sort of incidental to what he was doing. And it sounds like he is also specifically the reason why this little seedling of soccer in America ever began to sprout. There's no doubt, Pablo. I mean, I think, you know, if you trace back, and this is really overly simplistic, but if you trace back the rise of soccer in the United States, right? Like the, the attention and the, the excitement that we felt at the World Cup this year. And you look back a generation uh, to the 94 World Cup when we were kids and experienced that World Cup in 94. And now a generation later, yes. we're the parents excited about the World Cup in 2022. Back it up even more. Pele in the 1970s set up the ability for the World Cup to even happen in 1994 in the United States and for MLS to even start in 1996. That was the most important decision in my life because uh, I went there, we promote football in the United States. Today, football in the United States, soccer, is a bigger and more organized than Brazil, than all over the world. I am proud of that. Pelé's arrival was sort of the generational kickstart that led to that, the same way the 94 World Cup was the generational kickstart that led to the renaissance that soccer's experiencing right now. You know, it does occur to me when we talk about how he was a forerunner of so many things, soccer in America, and also just like the template for what it is to be a modern global sports star. It, it also feels safe to say that, like, in his later years, the guy sold a lot of stuff, man. Like he was, he was a friend of capitalism. Yeah. He, yeah. He, he sold a lot, Pablo, like a lot. And, you know, it feels, uh, if you look back at it, like if you were to make a list, it, it sometimes feels ridiculous. You know, I mean, he got paid. Oh, first of all, he recorded his own music, uh, which by the way, was playing kind of on a loop during the 24 hour <laughs> awake in the stadium at Villa Belmiro, which 
was a little difficult. I mean, if you were there for any extended period of time, it's a little difficult to sort of hear the same, like one song over and over and over. Another again. way he was ahead of his time. <laughs> Athletes recording their own songs. A, a, yeah, yeah. A, and a one hit wonder in a lot of ways too. But I mean, he was on TV. He was in a soap opera. He advertised for Puma. He advertised for Pepsi. He advertised for MasterCard. Pablo, I, I know this is a family-friendly uh, production, but he was right at the forefront of the erectile dysfunction medication revolution. I mean, this guy was a pitch man for Viagra. You know, he he did, of course. he did hair things. He did jewelry things. Look, he came from poverty. He had struggled with his finances. There was no doubt that he was very cognizant of money and wanted to, you know, do good in the world, but also get paid for doing that good. And it also has the effect of changing how the younger generation, again, who we are trying to help out here, Use this man. I remember going to the World Cup with you, Sam, in Brazil in 2014 and seeing him, you know, selling Subway sandwiches. Yes. You know, again, like, of course. But the point is, he was somebody who was that guy in the commercial as much as he was by the end of his life, that guy in that highlight reel. Yeah, there's no doubt. And I, I think, look, Pablo, you know, it's easy to sort of feel like, oh, he did too much. It was ridiculous. Like you said, the subway thing or the Viagra thing or whatever. I mean, you know, the bottom line is, is like athletes today do it all the time. I mean, Messi had his name linked to a blockchain, uh, you know, entity at one point. <laughs> yes. Like, you know, I'm not sure how that's going to look in terms of, uh, you know, historical choices or whatever. But my point yeah, I'm is a bit on bad, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My point is only that, like, to me, the, the business part of it was never really the thing. Honestly, I think that when you look at what Pele did to his legacy, I think the larger questions come from the more significant, the more meaningful issues, you know? Mm. Did he- Like what? What are you thinking of on that front? Yeah, I think that there are fair criticisms and questions about- how Pelé dealt with political issues and with societal issues like we talked about before. You know, Pablo, this week, right, I met up with a woman named uh, Didi Diaz, and she is a 66-year-old retired professor, and she has worked as an activist in Brazil with feminist groups, with anti-racism groups for her entire life. And Dida was telling me that she is feeling awkward because everybody is lionizing Pele in the you know aftermath of his death, and and she gets it. I mean, Pele obviously is a huge figure in Brazilian uh, culture, but she feels conflicted, and there are a number of Brazilians, she says, who feel conflicted, and a lot of it has to do with the fact mm. that he was a black man playing a white sport and having incredible success, and that's amazing. That's inspirational for so many people in so many ways. And Pelé did any number of positive things uh, in terms of representing both Brazilians, black people, athletes. He embraced higher education. He went back to uh, college and got a uh, degree, which not many of his contemporaries did. But, but Dito was saying that he didn't speak out at any point in his career, at any point in his life, really. He didn't speak out and use his platform to speak to the anti-racism movement. He, he just didn't, you know? Uh, it was one of those things where he went along with the establishment line, which is that racism isn't a problem in Brazil. And if it is, it's a small one that if you shine a light on it, all you're doing is making it more likely it's gonna happen again. Yeah, I'm kind of getting echoes almost of like a Republicans buy sneakers to kind of a dynamic here where you have this global superstar, Michael Jordan, in the one hand, 
Pele on the other, where people from his own, of his own background, wish he had done more to speak directly for them. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, you know, this is what Dita said. She was like, you know, he would say, I suffered because I was poor, which he was, but he never would say I suffered because I was black, even though it was very clear that he did. I mean, when he got to Santos as a teenager, he was sometimes called gasolina, you know, which is a reference to petroleum, to oil, right? Uh, and, and, and obviously his skin. When he became a star player in the 60s, Dita told me that he tried to join the very popular Santos Tennis Club, but it was all white and they wouldn't let him in. This is the biggest star in the city and they wouldn't <laughs> let him in. So like, that's what she was saying, that it was clear he's, he's lived in so many ways the lives that black Brazilians have lived, but didn't speak to that shared experience in any meaningful way. And I think in a lot of ways, Pablo, that left a certain segment of the population feeling as though he fell short. You seem to be describing, Sam, somebody who was so broadly popular. So again, so much the most famous man in the world that he really took pride in wanting to keep like his fan base together. He seemed bipartisan in, in aspiration. Yeah, there's there's no doubt. Let me tell you a story, Pablo, that uh, Dita told me. You know, in 1978, there was a, another Brazilian uh, soccer player who was a big goal scorer. His name was Renaldo. And he celebrated his goals by raising his fist like the Black Panthers did. He, he wanted to support the Black Panthers. And that display really angered the Brazilian military dictatorship. They weren't happy with that. They essentially told him, hey, we'll do the politics. You know, you just play soccer. And Hinaldo pushed back. And ultimately, he was left off the roster in 1982. You know, technically, I think they said, oh, he was injured. He wasn't injured. They just didn't want him on the team. And so, you know, when Dita was telling me this story, she was saying, like, that's an example, right? This is a player who used that platform, made a statement, and had to suffer the consequences. And I think she feels as though Pelé was always driven by this idea, I can't lose what I've got. I need to do whatever I can to hold on to what I've got. And she wishes, I think, that he would have been willing to risk it, but he simply wasn't. Football is the most important the production of the Brazil. Don't go to mix sport with the political. We understand we need good education, we need school, we need the hospital, I understand. But we need, we need a stadium to play to. Football make Brazil big. And so by the end, in terms of now, the present tense, the later stages of his life, his final days, what do we know about, about his death? I don't know if you remember this, but uh, at that World Cup in Brazil in 2014, there were some questions about Pelé's health. And then in 2018 at the right. World Cup in Russia, there were stories about how he was in really poor health and his health was failing. And, you know, it was a, it was a thing. And then obviously during this World Cup, it happened again. Pelé's uh, in poor health. He's in the hospital. You know, he's under serious uh, doctor care 24 hours a day. He'd been treated for cancer, uh, a couple different kinds of cancer, I think, uh, in recent years and had uh, battled infections, different kind of types of um, respiratory problems. The main illness that he was battling was colon cancer. And it, it was one of those things where because it had been this sort of long running 
saga. And because the family had been very quick to say like, no, he's better, he's okay, it's okay. When I was in Qatar, I, I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about it because it, it felt very similar to what had happened in Russia. And so I think that, you know, when the news came that he had died on December 29th, I'm not going to say that I was surprised because look, he was 82, he was sick. But I think it was one of those things where nobody in the soccer world was was quite ready for it because it was something that we'd been sort of getting ready for for a long time, if that makes any sense. Yeah, we've never known a world without Pele until now. This is the unprecedented territory that sports finds itself in. We are inhabiting a world that he shaped, and now, now he's gone, Sam. And so as you're in Brazil right now, as you were just there, amid the celebration and the funeral, the mourning and the party, how do you think Brazil is going to remember him? How should we remember this man? Yeah, I'm glad you asked it kind of two ways there, Pablo, because I think that there, there, there are two parts to it, right? I mean, for someone like you, for somebody like me, I think we're like the average soccer fan, right? We, we love this game, we love this sport, and so because of what Pele means to this sport, it's impossible not to feel some kind of a connection. It's impossible not to think, hey, this guy created the modern football superstar. This guy created what it means to be famous in a global way. And that matters. That's meaningful. And so whatever you think of the rest of his life, that is a big part of his legacy. And for someone like you or for someone like me, that's a big part of what we'll remember. But the thing that makes me so happy that I came to Santos this week is that it is a different kind of an answer to that question when you're talking about people who are here. On... Monday morning, Pablo, I got up at 3.15 a.m. and I went from my hotel here to the Villa Belmiro Stadium uh, in the center of the city. By the time I got there, it was dark. Most of the, you know, lights in the houses were off. Everybody was sleeping. But at the stadium, there was a few dozen fans who were waiting, just standing there in this traffic circle right by the stadium, waiting. because Pelé's body was being transported from the hospital where he died in Sao Paulo to Santos, and he was going to arrive any moment. And then all of a sudden, Pablo, I look up and I look at the end of the street and I see six, seven, probably teenage 20-something boys running with giant white flags. They're waving Santos flags. And then a few seconds later, fireworks start going off. And not like little fireworks, not like, you know, pop gun fireworks, you know, that you would see like July 4th, like massive fireworks, like red and white lights, yeah, exploding in the sky. And I I kid you not, Pablo, like every light in the bedroom of every house on the street kind of flips on all in unison. Everybody's like just jolted awake, you know? The windows are opening. People are poking their heads out the window. These fireworks are just blasting, blasting, blasting. You know, lights everywhere. There's a helicopter overhead now flashing a searchlight. And all of a sudden, a convoy of cars makes this turn onto the street and comes towards us. There were 50 people there at most watching this car take Pele's body into the stadium. But 
they were there to watch Pele come home. You know, this is a guy who belonged to the world. He belonged to, to everybody, everybody who loved soccer, but he didn't belong to anybody more than he belonged to the people in Santos. And they wanted to see him come home. And so they came out at four o'clock in the morning. They shot fireworks off into the air. They sang as the hearse pulled into the stadium and they welcomed Pele back home. Sam Borden, our correspondent that we export all over this planet. Thanks for joining us, man. (laughs) Thanks very much, Pablo. Always great to be with you. I'm Pablo Torre. This has been ESPN Daily, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.